Biopod Academy. I'm Esther Guyton Fuertes. Biopics seem to be very popular these days. Films like Diana, Saving Mr. Banks, 12 Years a Slave or The Wolf of Wall Street claim to be based on real-life events and they aim to depict certain episodes of the lives of the protagonists. I've had the opportunity to talk to Tom Brown and Belen Vidal, two lecturers in film studies at King's College London, about the recent book The Biopic in Contemporary Film Culture and find out more about this genre. that the biopic is an area in film studies that has not been studied with sufficient depth and if so why well um yes and no it has been studied but yes it hasn't been perhaps studied enough the thing is that the biopic as a genre has always been always been there i mean it goes back to the beginning of film history but the thing is the biopic has also kind of cropped out as part of other genres and that's what's been the way it's been looked at mainly by scholars you know as biopics that were part of the musical genre or gangster films or westerns all those genres would have biographical elements or would occasionally um do stories that are based on real characters or real lives or people that existed so in a way there's been a um forming an idea of the biopic it's always been throughout film history as part of kind of popular genres but the truth is when Tom and I came into this project we also did it because we were interested that um in all this time basically what we have is only two books which are two excellent starting points to study of the biopic but it seemed very little considering the popularity of the genre so it's worth mentioning that the first book that took the genre seriously or did a kind of serious kind of comprehensive approach was George Custance's um book called the biopics or how hollywood constructed public history this was a book on the classical biopic mostly uh, films made in the 30s and 40s and it focused on hollywood um after that recently we had had another book coming out by Dennis Bingham about the biopic in contemporary film culture and this again this is a book that tackles the modern biopic the biopic since kind of the post war uh, period and up to the contemporary moment but again is very heavily leaned towards the english language so we thought why not doing a kind of more reviewing of the biopic in in the last kind of 20 years especially and how also the genre has spread and has become more visible internationally because when Tom and I were very struck by is the huge amount of films coming from very different national cinemas all marketing themselves as biographical films and many of them i mean very often being immensely popular if we think about la mom that was called la vie en rose here for french film about a french singer edith piaf making it to up all the way to the oscars all the way kind of to the big time in hollywood and being distributed all over the world i mean what were the conditions that were creating this um appetite for biographical narratives and how are these films now become much more visible not only from hollywood but from all over the world so we wanted to study this phenomenon and say something about the biopic in contemporary film culture and that's what the book is about what approach do you adopt in your book to study the biopic what we're very interested is also in the narrative structures in the tropes that recur time and again so is there such a thing as the poetics of the contemporary biopic is there such a thing as a kind of certain structures you know 
being used and reused time and again, new genres forming. This is what we were very interested in when we were looking at the different chapters and, and bringing the work together and trying to find the different kind of points in common between chapters that very often would tackle cycles and bodies of films from very different national cinemas. So in the book, for instance, there's a chapter concentrating on the South Korean film industry and the importance, the boom of the biopic there. It's another chapter on uh, Indian cinema, Bollywood cinema and the biopic, and also there are chapters about French cinema, also contemporary American cinema, but you know, biopics coming from all over the world. Um, so we're wondering why this boom of biopics now, meaning in the last 20 years, and what kind of lines can we find for the study of the biopic without it just becoming excessively fragmented or just, you know, having more examples and examples from places, but just what are the lines of the study? What are the main questions these films are asking? I also asked Tom Brown and Belen Vidal if a biopic can properly represent the life of a real person and whether we can distinguish between good and bad biopics. Well, I'll let Belen kind of kick off with the represent the life of a real person and I'll come on to the good and the bad because I'm interested <laughs> in that Right. <laughs> Again, this is a very intriguing question because what is properly, you know, representing the life of a real person. Obviously, this question goes all the way back to biographic studies and the different styles of writing biography, I mean, from the encyclopedic, you know, classical biographies to the kind of more, more modern biographies that have tended to concentrate more on moments in time. I would definitely say there's no proper way, but I would kind of subscribe to what Hermione Lee, uh, which is kind of a lustrous biographer, said about the genre itself. Um, and she said that biography is actually a quest for lives that speak to us. This is to say, it's really as important, uh, you know, the capturing of the essence of the person, of the character or the life of the person as it is, that what it matters, why it matters to us now and why should it matter to us. What this film is kind of fascinating, you know, makes for a fascinating story here and now. This is also what biography is about. But what can we learn from, not only from a period in history or from about the life of, a, of an individual person, but our own relationship, if we want, to the past and present. So the question of how best represent the life of a real person, again, it's a, it's a, it's a fraught question, because what we can say is there have been models of writing and models of, of filmmaking about, about real lives. We can go all the way back to Sigmund Freud and when he was kind of researching the life of Leonardo da Vinci and produced a biography that I was actually was heavily criticized by his contemporaries as being completely inaccurate. But what Freud was looking for was not for exactly for an accurate biography, but was for symptoms or, or little kind of clues in the childhood of Leonardo that would kind of give you a sense of the man he would become later and the great artist he would become. And this is a model that really endures in contemporary filmmaking as well as in classical filmmaking. I mean, we actually, we have looked at it as the, um, the teleological model or the self-fulfilling narrative. Going back to the beginning of a narrative, going back to the kind of childhood of the, of the person, only to find exactly the clues that you know make sense in in makes sense for what we know what the person would become. So again, that produces a completely, if you want, artificial or kind of contrived narrative because it's always 
is always conditioned by what we know this person would become great for. So the narrative becomes subordinated to that, shaped by that knowledge. So we were very interested about how that knowledge also can become very conventional and in a way very predictable. And it's fascinating that we were looking at um, interviews with film directors. Most of them expressed really resistance to the genre or mistrust of the genre. I mean, somebody like Todd Haynes, for instance, has expressed disdain for the genre, even if he's made biopics, like most recently I'm not there. He said about the genre that it's a formula, and he said it's a formula even more than other film genres because whatever the life is, it has to fit into this one package. And this is a quotation, actually, from an interview. This is something he said. Other people like Jane Campion, when asked about films like Bright Star, um, the life of well, or the film about John Keats, the poets that Jane Campion made in 2010, or Steven Spielberg asked about Lincoln. Basically, he would, he would say, this is not a biopic. Jane Campion also would insist when asked about Bright Star, this is not a biopic, because they see the biopic as this very conventional cradle-to-grave formula, a film that has to cover the whole life of the character or the whole life of the person, whereas the kinds of filmmaking they're interested in is not... This, this kind of classical filmmaking. The thing is, in kind of doing our research, we found that actually there were very, very few films that you could say they went from cradle to grave, they went from birth to death. I mean, this is actually not a format that is amenable for filmmaking. I mean, there is one example that we found, uh, the Abraham yeah. Lincoln made by... Um, D.W. Griffith, yes. So... But yes, that's the only that's the only Lincoln biopics. I'm doing some further research on Abraham Lincoln biopics, and it's the only one that follows him from the cradle to the grave, and the only one of the ones that you've seen that you've been able to identify as kind of starting with the baby subject. And even Griffith's Lincoln has the baby, but then it jumps to him as a young man played by Walter Houston, who plays Lincoln through the rest of the film, and and goes on from there. So this kind of gradual kind of move through the stages from birth to death is is not what the films do. Their, their, narrative, their engagement with a range of other genres is more complex than that, isn't it? They're drawing on westerns or they're drawing on um, musicals or they're drawing on a, a range of other forms to create their structures, the eddies and flows of a life. Exactly, and also they use narrative figures like condensation or summarising or putting together the research about different moments in the life of the person, just putting it together in one event or one anecdote that contains basically the point that you want to make. So again, these kinds of, of approaches with George Custon already typified kind of studied in his book on classical biopics are very much still alive today and very much still used. The encounter between two famous people for instance, this seems to be more and more a model to work from rather than trying to kind of cover the whole life of a person. You would focus about the moment in which two people meet and what that says about the character of the persons. I mean, the recent, the most recent film by Ron Howard, which is about to get released in this rush, and it's about a biopic of, of two Formula One kind of uh, drivers. James Hunt and Nicky Laura comes to mind. It's about having that dual format rather than just, just following the life of one of them. So that is seen as a more satisfying formula. And just to come back in, this idea of the formula and of like finding moments to compress, to condense the drama in someone's life, that is why, according to... I'm sure if you ask a lot of um, traditional historians, 
they the answer to the question can a biopic properly represent the life of a real person is is no because they they compress they condense um even even Lincoln for the Spielberg film which is historically um, in terms of its engagement with kind of history with real history is a highly intelligent highly reflective film really engaged with the minutiae of political process it's very talky it's very kind of engaged with the language and political discourse however a conventional film historian I saw um, interviewed recently was kind of saying but no but but of course the history of the abolition of the slave trade is so much complicated than this it's the film is only two hours long so therefore it can only give you nothing but a completely superficial understanding um, it's not all about Lincoln and even though one might say well the film doesn't suggest it's all about Lincoln still films for, for historians will always fail on the terms that academic historians will set for them on the terms of written history because it's a completely different form of of history making, of history telling. But of course the best films kind of use the possibilities, the conventions available only to film to give you a sense of history in a way that a written text won't or can't. Um, So it's not a question of, of kind of good or bad or properly or not properly but of kind of crucial differences between media. But certainly there is an interest in accuracy, in the question of accuracy. And, for example, the Guardian website regularly has this feature called, I think it's called Real History. Yes, and films, Real, like with two E's, right? Yes, Real History. Real History with two E's. And the films, uh, often biopics, they have an entertainment grade, so they're like A+, plus, A-, minus, B-, minus, B+, plus, and then a history grade. So there's this interest, and they generally... Although very often they, they score worse on the, on the history grade than they do in the entertainment grade. But there's this interest in the question of accuracy, which means that biopics will always fail in representing a life according to certain measures. But, but then how does one capture a life in any medium, really, is the question. Exactly. In a way, what it tells you about the genre is how it sits at the intersection of different discourses and expectations. I mean, there's the discourse and the expectations of the professional historians, of the specialist discourse, if you want. There's the general history approach, the approach that wants to focus more on education and just spread dissemination of the knowledge about that one person. And there's the question of entertainment. The audience expect to be entertained, to be, you know, the, the imagination to be captured by this that story. So really you have to sacrifice perhaps what is a lot of detail, a lot of research on the grounds of making the film as dramatically, you know, potent as as you can. And it's also sometimes the frictions between these three different sets of expectations that manifest, you know, in the reception of the biopics, in their popularity as well. I mean, why are these films so popular at the same time they rate so low with critics sometimes? Here, I think it's fair to quote, I think Robert Rosenstone is a very interesting academic to go to because he comes from a background of just being a professional historian, but at the same time, he understands very well that the specificities of the film medium and the specificities of history and film. And he has actually said of the genre, and I quote, less than full-blown portraits, biopics or biofilms, as he calls them, should be seen and understood as slices of lives, interventions into particular discourses, extended metaphors meant to suggest more than their limited time frames can convey, end of quote. And I think this summarizes very well what are the constraints and the possibilities of the genre. In terms of, to return to this, the, the question you asked about are they good and bad biopics, it's, it's an interesting one because 
it comes back to, as Belen has kind of talked about, the um, the relative neglect of this major genre and there being kind of two books, um, two important books, and a few kind of articles here and there, but relatively the genre is underrepresented compared to musicals and westerns, obviously, and um, comedies and a range of a range of other genres. And I think one reason for that is the kind of in between the good and the bad, the kind of middle brow being something that I write about in the, in the book in relationship to um, a very middle-brow biopic, um, Amazing Grace, which was a British biopic of um, William Wilberforce, a, a campaigner for the abolition of the slave trade, William Wilberforce. And, yes, so the, the, in film studies, the kind of low-genres, low low-brow genres, like musicals and comedies, have been celebrated, and high-brow forms, the films of Jean-Luc Godard, for example, and kind of artistic and auteur-oriented kind of films have been talked about. But the kind of the filmmaking in the middle, the kind of popular middle-brow filmmaking has been neglected. And the biopic, with its great success in terms of Oscars regularly, is a highly, highly middle-brow genre that's been, that's been greatly, greatly neglected. Um, but yeah, one of the things we're really interested in, in in the book is kind of exploring the popular, uh, the low-brow, the middle-brow and the more experimental biopic, which is more readily identified as being good in the terms that f- academic film studies would normally consider. But yeah, the biopic kind of certainly goes to the heart of these things because most of the biopic production in film and of course in, it's, it's been in television and kind of movie of the week kind of format is middle brow. Um, but there has been an important kind of development in in how to tackle lives, the representation of lives kind of in different, more experimental ways, which has seen kind of, yeah, more highbrow kind of um, biopics being developed. Do you have anything to say, Belen, about, about the kind of question of good and bad biopics? I, th- I think, no, I, I totally agree with what you say in your answer, and I think also that kind of um, take us to the next point about the question of different biographical films and film traditions. And again, this is a very interesting point because when, again, we started this project, we thought naturally if we tackle, you know, an, a range of international biopics, biopics coming from very different national, cultural and industrial contexts, we're going to get very different kinds of films. And it's not always the case because kind of narratives and styles have become more and more and more globalized. And you can see certain formulas popping up in very different contexts, but also how uh, films coming from different traditions experiment with these formulas in different ways. What I'm trying to say here is that we wouldn't divide the the biopics per nations, but rather actually the division between popular, middle-brow, and kind of high-brow or more experimental ways of doing the biographical narrative are the most productive and also allow you to see similarities between films produced more or less roughly at the same time. So, for instance, in the question of the popular biographical film, I mean, we've seen a boom in the so-called heritage biopic or biopics about writers, about literary figures and about moments like the 18th century, the 19th century. And we can go all, I mean, we can go back to the the huge popularity of something like Shakespeare in Love, again, which referred to a very, very established uh, tradition in British heritage film, and and kind of played with it and made a film that was really postmodern in the way that wasn't afraid about anachronism, wasn't afraid about being tongue-in-cheek about the whole issue of creativeness and the literary hero or the literary genius. 
but at the same time very much offer kind of stuck to this template of imagining the life of Shakespeare as per the knowledge that we have about his works. So Romeo and Juliet will become the template for his own narrative. And then we saw this narrative again reappearing in something like Becoming Jane that was made up a few years afterwards. So again, reimagining the life of Jane Austen as if as it was another of her novels. Then we saw this again in France, something quite similar in the film Molière, which again uh, tackled you know, the figure of a literary, a, a, a huge kind of literary figure in France and just did a light romantic comedy about it. Also in Spain, we had Lope, about the life of Lope de Vega, following exactly the same template. Or even in Germany, um, a film was made in 2010 called, that was called for international distribution, Young Goethe in Love. So you can see the same kind of template reappearing in different national contexts as per the success of the Heritage Biopic, which is a format that has traveled very well internationally. We can, we've seen also I mean, in our research for the book, and we have chapters kind of tackling um, um, films that are you know, between the art house and popular genres, so something, for instance, like Il Divo, um, the Italian film about Giulio Andreotti, does take a lot from gangster films and at the same time uses a unique mode of representation that is between the operatic and the grotesque to approach a very fraught period of Italian um, political history in order to make um, a portrait of one of his main kind of actors that doesn't aim to be a realistic portrait, but a portrait that is informed, as I say, by different modes of representations. Same could be said about Gainsbourg, a recent French film about the figure of Serge Gainsbourg, one of the most famous, kind of famous composers and singers in French um, popular music, that uses um, the character of Gainsbourg, but also uses doubles, uses puppets, uses fantasy moments to create a different route into the inner life of the, of the singer and the composer and produce something that is between the heritage film and the fantasy films and gives you a more of a sense of split identity, more of a sense of the inner conflict of the artist. So therefore you arrive at something that feels more truthful perhaps in the end and more and fresh, more fresh than if you just took the conventional route of representation. Some biopics present a filmmaker's personal vision of their subject of interest, but they're often criticized for the lack of historical fidelity. That was the case, for example, of Sofia Coppola's biopic of Marie Antoinette. Can these type of films also be considered biopics, even if they don't exactly follow the conventions of the genre? And speaking from kind of purely personally and from kind of questions of enjoyment, the, the biopics I enjoy most, such as I'm Not There, or find, find the most interesting, find the most stimulating, are the ones that um, are not burdened by simple questions of fidelity and uh, realistic representation, but kind of play with the form in, imagine, in imaginative ways. I think that's a really important trend. I think um, Marianne Antoinette is kind of a really important text within a trend in biopics that the book really reflects upon. And we have a section of the of the book that's focused on experimental, more kind of quote-unquote auteur-oriented approaches to, to their subject matter. And um, yeah, Marie Antoinette's kind of key in that because, yeah, and also I'm not there, um, definitely. But also there are um, kind of experimentation is found within kind of more 
the less kind of clearly authored because, of course, Sophia Coppola um, and Todd Haynes are both established filmmakers. But things like even Beyond the Sea and De Lovely, which one of our other um, authors is, is talking about within the film, Lucy Fife Donaldson, are not, um, they don't have that kind of auteur aura in the same way, but they, they're also, they d- display the kind of experimentation as kind of filtered down through the biopic and have kind of different people playing, perhaps playing the, the, the figure at times and kind of fantasy moments, kind of play with genre. Um, but yes, the author, author biopic is an interesting, is a very interesting um, kind of major trend, um, as I've said. And I think Belen's example of kind of comparing Walk the Line to I'm Not There is, is really fascinating. It kind of Walk the Line represents the kind of traditional middle-brow um, biopic uh, to the extent that it's, it's, a, it's a form in many ways to showcase the, the talented performer. So Joaquin Phoenix sings his own songs within that. He, he does Johnny Cash... Um, through not just in in the kind of dramatic sections but in the musical section so it really is a showcase of this famously talented actors kind of show whereas I'm not there kind of um the the individual auteur view could be seen to be above and beyond any individual performer because of course Todd Haynes chooses to have Bob Dylan incarnated by lots of different people, many of which don't look anything like Bob Dylan because they're either a woman or a young black boy. So, um, so there, the kind of the auteur, the the author is is absolutely above. But of course, the interesting thing about an author biopic is 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 the the best ones try to capture the essence of the person that they're capturing. Um, that they're so Marie Antoinette, uh, Sophia Coppola's plays with form is trying to capture a kind of a, a teenage girl kind of out of out of her place and ta- time in a sense by being taken to Versailles and uses anachronism to capture that. And then Todd Haynes captures the the musical development of Bob Dylan and and the fact that he is a figure that's always refused to be pinned down by literally making him difficult to pin down as a figure on screen because he kind of appears in in different guises. So I think this is a really important a really important trend um, in the in in the contemporary biopic, which is this trend towards um, individual filmmakers trying to find a new language and a kind of an individual language in order to deal with things. And to come back to the example of Marie Antoinette, of course this has important industrial aspects to it and, and Pam Cook's essay in the book on that particular film, which I'm sure you'll enjoy reading that chapter as you're a fan of the film, um, talks about um, Sofia Coppola as a auteur construct and her the dissemination of her image through interviews and through magazine shoots and through her various other activities such as fashion design is all part of the promotion of the film, the promotion of her as a, as a kind of branded product in a sense which is absolutely crucial to the way the contemporary film industry, the contemporary film moment that we're in differs from say the classical Hollywood tradition in which uh, which George Custom was writing about, where the films were producer, were kind of producer films really, and the directors were kind of often fairly anonymous in the minds of the public. I wonder if also if I could take over I mean, the, the, the point about Marie Antoinette and the author biopic also choose to mention briefly um, 
uh, the question, the best question about gender and the biopic, because that's also a very, very interesting one. I mean, what happens, um, it is no secret that most, uh, it, traditionally, maybe most biographical films have been about men, but there are more and more uh, films about women uh, now, and many of them made by kind of female filmmakers as well, which is not necessarily meaning that these films only interest women filmmakers, but there's been an effort in kind of retrieving women's history as well. I mean, we can uh, see this going, just talking only about the modern period, we can go back to the 80s and films like kind of Margaret von Todas, Rosa Luxemburg, to try and kind of to and portrait of a key politician, a key socialist politician. Uh, in the 90s, we had uh, a, many female artists, biopics, films about Frida Kahlo, like Julie Timers, Julie Timers Frida. We had a film about Artemisia, uh, who claims it was kind of um, claimed to be one of the first um, women painters is he history, if not the first. So there's been a trend about of, of these kind of women biopics um, that want to retrieve these forgotten histories. Again, Claude, uh, Camille Claudel in the 80s comes to mind. But at the same time, there's the question of what kinds of narratives then uh, are the, the biopics creating for the for the women artists or, or the historical kind of figures of women? And again, Marie Antoinette is what is very interesting is since the 2000s, a film like Marie Antoinette, what is really mainly stressing is the modernity of the figure. The point of Marie Antoinette also being she's like not just an exceptional individual kind of place and an exceptional moment in time and history, but also a girl like any other. And emphasizing that modernity becomes key in the project of the film. Uh, similarly, we have another chapter in the book by Jeanette Van Sando, which is about films about Coco Chanel, and that being a figure that has generated a lot of interest in recent times as the model, if you want, of the successful, powerful business woman, a woman who excels in a domain that even if it's seen as traditionally feminine, the, model, the domain of fashion is being controlled mostly by, by men and kind of proposes a portrait of a powerful woman. The problem is, is that sometimes these narratives of modernity and power and creativity attached to women also come hand in hand with other narratives of victimization as well. I mean, Marie Antoinette again, leaves the young queen in a way out of history or as a victim of history. Again, you could say that in the Coco Chanel films, like the film recently made with Audrey Tatou in the role, that was film was called uh, Coco Before Chanel, Coco Avant Chanel, about the young years of the designer. She's presented also as a victim of her love life. So there's certain kind of narratives that have to do with emotion, with romance, that recur again and again when telling the histories of famous women. And at the same time, how those histories are also commodified in, in industrial context. Again, the example of Coco Chanel also has been examined by Van Sendo in, in the book as an example of France doing global business or reinforcing its brand image and helping to sell its products all over the world, also appealing to that uh, most famous kind of, of designers through biopics kind of made for television and film. So yes, all this kind of interest and vested interest come together in, in films about women, which I think is kind of an interesting topic as well. And we can go back we can go back further to thinking about, as Belen said earlier, about the the kind of key division being between sort of mainstream, middle brow 
representations versus kind of experimental ones rather than being national differences and seeing kind of these kind of internationally shared things um my phd research ages ago was comparing 30s biopics in france and hollywood and found remarkably similar tropes in terms of gender and sexuality of course predominantly the films were focused on on men because the great men of history quote other kind of drivers of history um, and certainly in the 30s there were fewer examples of female biographies in, in that frame um, perhaps of women as nurturers and yeah. women so Florence, Florence Nightingale right, or entertainers or entertainers say, absolutely yeah. so within certain within certain fields but yeah, one thing I found in the 30s was remarkably similar kind of representations of, of foresight and the kind of capacity to change history as being coded very strongly as a masculine trope and women being more concerned with kind of the present but not with the kind of historical legacy and that's something that's kind of continued up to recent days and something I think about a little bit in my, ch- in my chapter on a, on a relatively recent film. So yeah, so there is this long history of certain ways of kind of seeing the female figure and the male figure is kind of given the force of kind of historical progress. And um, well, you've talked about the industrial implications of the biopic and I, I was also interested in, in knowing whether there are also political implications of the biopic. For example, you were talking about Lincoln. I think sometimes the moment where um, when a film is produced sometimes influences the interpretation of a, of a certain biopic. Well, I mean, a famous thing said about historical films, I think Mark Farrow is perhaps the first person to say it, or one of the people to have said it anyway, is that they say more about the moment in which they were produced than they say about the moment they, re- they represent. Um, and Lincoln is a fascinating example, which I've not quite got my head around its, its kind of placement within the contemporary moment, but kind of certainly off the top of one, one, one's head, I can think about Obama and the, the links that were made between Lincoln and Obama before Lincoln came along. And... Um, the 1930s were when there were more Abraham Lincoln films than any other uh, during the period of the Great Depression. So during a period of, of crisis in American history and American identity and a sense of American power, which one could certainly say is the case now, Lincoln was returned to as this kind of the, the, one of the great Americans, the greatest president, this man of foresight and vision and justice. So certainly that's, there's that there. But also I think the Spielberg-Lincoln taps into contemporary interests in in political process and lobbying, for example, and the film has got quite a kind of wry view of political realities because, of course, this hugely just cause, which is the abolition of slavery, is in large part achieved through, for want of a better word, corruption and the buying of votes. And so I think that that leads that kind of feeds into explicitly political kind of things and interests and the public's kind of awareness of kind of real politic really. So I think Lincoln's a fascinating example. And I think in terms of the political implications of the biopic, many of the things Belen was saying about the gender politics and about women um, are of course also political are also political issues. Yeah. I would say, I mean, since the 2000s, we enter a kind of a golden era of the political biopic, or the biopic also made for political purposes. I mean, first and foremost, the, pol- the, the biopics of, poli- of politicians or activists, I mean, 
Oliver Stone, we could say the latter part of his career has been kind of basically founded on this interest on, on political figures from GFK to Nixon to Fidel Castro in Comandante, although that's a documentary again, and his most recent film W, which was is allegedly was released just before the general elections in the States. I mean, it would be perhaps too much to say try to influence the elections, but definitely making a portrait less than flattering of the, the early years of George W. Bush at the time of the election was surely not an innocent planning, you know, behind the producers of the film W. Uh, it was too sympathetic, according ex- to some people. Exactly. So. Yeah, perhaps people were expecting something much more fierce and much more aggressive on the power of Oliver Stone. And actually, the film was was kind of between the satire and also kind of a a sympathetic portrait of a profoundly misled, you want, politician as Oliver Stone saw him. I mean, something like Milk, about activism. And, and gay rights in the 70s also struck a really strong chord with the current debates about gay rights in, in contemporary kind of the United States. So you can see how the political purposes of this film, I mean, I myself have looked at different representations of Tony Blair in up to three different films. The deal which was made uh, in the early 2000s for Channel 4, the immensely successful The Queen, and more recently The Special Relationship, which traces, it's about the relationship of Tony Blair and Bill Clinton. And what is very interesting is seeing kind of the evolution of the portrait of Tony Blair, also tracing a fascinating period in kind of recent British political history and also the different attitudes and the different perspectives on Tony Blair as the new labor era kind of unfolded and as kind of he came to an end on a point where much of the electorate kind of felt disappointed with the politics of Tony Blair and how the films were you know, registering that subtle turn of politics in kind of contemporary Britain were being reflected in a portrait of Blair that kept changing throughout this cycle of films. So again, it's fascinating what how films can engage in contemporary politics. At the same time, in a way, the biopic has always had a political function, which is which also resides in allegory and the mom, and the way that a kind of a, a life, which is not necessarily a life of a politician, can be told in order to push a particular political perspective. I mean, I'm thinking about Derek Charman's Caravaggio, an 80s film, which also forms is at the center of another of the chapters in the book, which is. Uh, First and foremost, it's kind of a biopic of the, the Baroque Italian painter, but it's so much more than that because the film is actually defending ideas about gay rights and gay communities and representation of histories that go against hegemonic kind of bourgeois models of representations that want to get a very, very raw approach to the politics of creativity and authorship by showing Caravaggio uh, dealing with his uh, patrons, dealing with his protectors, and dealing with a, a profoundly political environment of 16th century Italy and court politics, etc., etc. So films can serve to different purposes at different times and, and definitely can be used to talk about different things. To just kind of continue from what Belen's saying, and again, to bring it back to Lincoln, sorry, I keep on doing this. But Young Mr. Lincoln, the John Ford film, is, is really important in thinking about the, the political implications of the biopic for a couple of reasons. I mean, it was the film about which the editors of the famous French cinema journal, Cahiers du Cinema, uh, wrote an essay in the 1970s 
and kind of organised this highly politicised dissection of the way that classical Hollywood relays kind of mythic um, structures and, and mythic meanings through the discussion of this biopic, Young Mr Lincoln, and that essay by the Coyote Cinema Editors was part of a major politicisation of film studies at the time. And Berlin mentioned of the role that allegory can play within biopics, um, so political allegories even if the films aren't explicitly dealing with politics per se in the way that the recent Lincoln film was. And that's a classic example, Young Mr Lincoln, in terms of uh, John Ford uh, playing Lincoln at one point has to judge a pie-eating contest and he's ruminating about these two pies, he just can't decide which is the better one and he's defending these two young men who have both been accused of murder and if the mother implicates one of them, the other one will be set free but it means that she'll be kind of letting one of her sons die and as kind of has clearly been understood this is both of these things the pie eating contest the two sides you can't decide between and two brothers potentially pitted against each other are kind of allegorical for the American for the American Civil War so the film is engaging with politics on that level but interestingly this is the Lincoln of the 1930s which is always a Lincoln the great preserver of the Union it's not Lincoln, the abolisher of slavery. It's in 2012 that Lincoln, the abolisher of slavery, is celebrated again. But in the 20s and 30s, Lincoln's role in that in the kind of slavery narrative is often sidelined in favour of emphasising he is the preserver of the American Union, and so because those racial politics are denied to some extent, are kind of elided, are are kind of avoided. But now we're facing up to those issues more directly because, of course, racial politics have moved on to a large extent, though obviously not completely since since those times. I think some of it, we we can say that definitely um, there is a huge appetite for biographical narratives. Biopics are coming out almost every week. It seems like the industry is also very much backing up producing these films, there are audiences for these films, so in, within the next few weeks there'll be a, a one biopic of Grace Kelly with Nicole Kidman another biopic of Diana um, Princess of Wales with Naomi Watts coming out, so there seems to be no end to this appetite for biographical narratives perhaps the, the production has moved more and more from um, the heritage films that were immensely popular in the 90s and early 2000s to closer figures in history and figures that are very much part of our recent memory. So we have this phenomenon, again, of what one of the contributors in the book, Rebecca Sheehan, calls the instantaneity of the biopic, or the instant biopic. I mean, that's something like The Social Network, the David Fincher film about the founder of Facebook, uh, we propose. Uh, So you have a film that is not only about a figure in communications that's come to prominence very recently, but it's about the instantaneity of digital communications. So the biopic is also opening up to thinking about transmission, communication, and about how we keep our memory, how memory is reproduced, and how it keeps changing, basically, and how history is much more subject to the immense availability of archives, the availability of um, audiovisual materials. Again, it used to be that biopics of painters or or authors, the basis of those were the works of art themselves. Now, maybe the basis of the contemporary biopic is much more television recording, recordings, audio recordings, uh, digital 
recordings, etc., etc. So the, the, the window between of transmission and the window of what's considered the past is become kind of shorter and shorter. So more and more films are looking at the very recent past, and that's also fascinating in how it's reshaping the what it was called the long duration narratives or the the classical model as it was understood of of the biopic that would span, you know, 50 years or 60 years, even if, as we said before, those films were never meant to be from cradle to grave, kind of all-encompassing narratives of a whole life. So, so yes, that kind of urgency also that is temporal as well as political of the new biopic, I think is very interesting. Tom Brown and Belen Vidal's The Biopic in Contemporary Film Culture has been published by Routledge. If you're interested in film and filmmaking, check our arts and culture section on our website, www.podacademy.org. Thank you.